0: Well, good morning, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm chapter two, Psalm two, as we will be looking at this Psalm this morning. Psalm two, a Psalm of David. Read along with me in your Bibles this morning as we hear the inerrant word of God this morning. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a, vine th- a vain thing, the king of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us." He who sits in the heavens laughs; the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayers before we go through our text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you again gave it to us in human language so that we could understand it. You expect us to. You have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truths for us. And so we pray this morning again that your spirit would be the teacher, that you would take your word and that you would implant it in our hearts that these truths would once again flame our love for you as we see our Lord Jesus Christ again this morning in the pages of scripture. Build your church here this morning. May you be glorified, I pray in your name, amen. Well, as we come to this text this morning, in many ways, we could not find a more appropriate piece of scripture for what we are going through in the world at this time. It is a passage that speaks exactly to what we see going on. We sometimes look around and we think that the world is out of control. We think the world is, is, is in chaos. We think it is against God and we think everything is at, at a loss. And yet when we come back to this passage, we realize that nothing is out of God's control. Nothing is is happening that he does not ordain and does not allow to happen. And in fact, this morning, as we look at this passage, we should be encouraged that God is in control. That our Lord Jesus Christ is in control. And that the world is going exactly to where God wants it to be. Nothing is happening that does not happen does not come from his good hand, and ultimately, Jesus Christ will rule. And for all of us who are in Jesus Christ, this should be a huge encouragement for us, where we look at life and we should be again invigorated to live life for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we recognize that he is in control, that he is coming back, and he will rule. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, there should be a chill that goes down your spine because you recognize that no matter how much you try to throw off the fetters of our Lord Jesus Christ and his rule, that he will continue to rule, he has has been ordained to rule from eternity past, God has never been out of control, he is coming back and he will judge those who oppose him. And so we have, we have a dual purpose in this passage. On one side, we as the church, those who are truly His, who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, should take joy in it. Because we recognize that nothing has changed since the garden. Nothing has changed. God is in control. And for those who are unbelievers this morning, those who are turning their back and trying to throw off the rule of Jesus Christ, you cannot... It is a vain thing, it says, and therefore you will stand in in judgment. And so the psalmist will end this and say, listen, there's still time. As long as there's breath in your lungs, there's still time to recognize the king and to submit to his rule. And so this morning, as we come to Psalm 2, again, we we are told it is a Psalm of David. We read that in Acts this morning, that We don't have anything in the book of Psalms, but certainly it's credited to him by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. So we know that the Holy Spirit wrote Scripture. The Holy Spirit knows God's mind, and he certainly knows, since the Holy Spirit wrote Scripture, we know that David wrote this psalm. And again, there are several levels to this psalm. We know in some sense this applies to the Davidic kings, There is a a sense in which they are the anointed of God. They are kings that have been set up and that the nations are coming against Israel and against God's anointed. But it soon becomes clear that this is far beyond just earthly kings and it points to the son of David to come, the king that would come, Jesus Christ. And so there there is in this psalm a pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he will come and he will rule. Now, this text really falls into four 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 short sections. It's got to be one of the easiest psalms to actually outline because you just know that it goes in three sections. And if you look at it in verses 1 to 3, we really have the world. The world is is defiant against God, and it is speaking. Then we go to verses 4, four to 6, and we hear the Father speaking. 7 to 9, we have the Son speaking. And in verse 10, we either have the psalmist or we could say the Holy Spirit is speaking. And so we have these four voices that are heard. Let there be light. light. (laughs) So there are four four voices that are heard in this psalm. And so as we work through this psalm, again, we, we are going to see that No matter how the nations rage, no matter how even individuals rage against the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing can stop his rule. Nothing can stop him from setting up his kingdom. Nothing can stop him from having sovereign control of the universe. And so this morning, we will see that as we walk through this text. And so we will again, first of all, as we see, we'll see that the... was tempted to make an outline. I was trying to make something cute so you could remember. I never do that, so this was unique. So I, I got Didi, but I don't know if that actually makes sense at all. So we're going to look at, first of all, the defiance of the nations. We're going to see the indignation of the Father. We're going to see the, uh, I forget, number three. but And then eventually we will see the invitation. And so this morning we will see these four points in our text. So this morning, as we begin, we see the defiance of the nations, the defiance of the nations. We begin in verse 1. He says, the psalmist says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now, this is not a question as to why. Why? He's not saying, why are they doing this? This is actually an explanation of, of surprise. This is almost indignation against it. How can it be, is the idea. How can, they be, how, can they, how can they be rebelling against God? There's an expression of just amazement here. There's a sense of astonishment at the senseless rejection of God's rule. And he says, these nations here, they are in an uproar. They are in a rage. They are, it's, it, this word is sometimes used to describe the raging of a sea, but here it refers to the tumulus meeting of rebels to a plan of attack. And so this meeting is going on and they are plotting together, it says here. They are taking c- the council together. They are, they are devising a plan and he says, they are devising, it says, a vain thing. And this is, an, this is where he's actually substituted what they're doing for, for something else. In other words, th- they're devising a plan of some kind to overthrow God. And he says, it's a vain thing. In other words, whatever they're doing is futile. It's useless. There's, the, whatever they will do is destined to fail. Fail. And so the psalmist expresses his his amazement that these people would try to overthrow or devise a plan against God. So it says the kings of the earth take their stands, and again the rulers of the and the rulers take their counsel together. They they stand up against God in defiance. There, There are kings, multiple kings, all of those who are are kings of the earth. Rulers, those who are the political leaders. And they conspire together, they take counsel together against God. It says, against the Lord and his anointed. In other words, against God and against his son. His anointed, the anointed was always given to a, to a, to a priest or to a king. Here it is to the son of God who is the king to come. And he says they are taking counsel against it. They're devising a plan. And this is what their plan is. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want him to rule over us. We don't want to obey. We want to throw off all the morality that, that he has. We want to throw away his laws. We don't want to serve him. And ultimately, we have seen this from the garden where people where mankind by nature has overthrown the rule of Jesus Christ in each one of them, and the nations and the rulers of the world have continued to do that since the very beginning. Kings have tried to take control of the world. In fact, we saw this come together, we could say, in history in, at the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we had the Romans and the Jews and the Sanhedrin and all of them coming together to try to go against the anointed one of Jesus Christ and they crucified him. We will not have this man rule over us. And they tried to throw off his fetters. They even thought that they won. As we look today, isn't that our world today? Has the world changed at all? We live at a time where the rulers and the politicians and everyone in the world is what? Ultimately trying to rule the world and they are throwing off everything that is biblical right is wrong wrong is right we've redefined marriage we've redefined sexuality we've redefined how you what gender you are we have thrown off everything that god has called good and we have replaced it with our own morality we have this new idea of inclusion that is really just a perversion of the truth. And so we see a world that is heading where there are the wise men of this world and the rulers of this world who are trying to bring the world together and form it according not to God's law, but their law. They want to make the world into a place where humanity does their bidding, not God's. And so we look around and we, 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 we get concerned and we go, oh, oh no, this is terrible. Oh no, this is wrong. And it is wrong. But what you're seeing has been systematic of humanity from the garden. And it is really the show of who humanity is. Because every single individual who is unregenerate and does not the Lord, know the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly here. And the individual is really indicative of the rulers. As they throw off Jesus Christ, we will not have him rule over us. And ultimately, there will come a day when the nations will come together again, and they will rebel, and they will come against our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you might say, well, that's not very cheery, Pastor. Well, the good news comes in the next section, right? How does God respond to this? We tend to get worked up and we get upset and we, we have our conversations and we, we talk about how people can't see the truth and we, we, we hammer away on our facts and our statistics. God doesn't do any of that. What does he do? Let's see the indignation of the Father He says in verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Isn't that interesting? We tend to get all flighty. We tend to get all upset. We tend to get in our little circles and talk. We have to make change. We've got to get to our politician. We've got to write that letter. We get all worked up. And what's God's response? He's seated on the throne. He's, he's enthroned in heaven. He's reigning. He's sovereignly over everything. And he's seated. He's not running around saying, oh no, things are not going the way I hoped. I'm sure hoping these people will, will start to believe in me and start doing the right thing. He's not doing any of that. He's seated at the throne, on the throne. He is not perturbed at all. He merely laughs. But it's not a laughter of hilarity, but a laugh of divine derision, mockery, and contempt. As one, one man said, it's God looks at puny man that he would rise up against him. And he laughs. You've got to be kidding me. It's like Isaiah talks about all of the nations being a speck of dust. A speck of dust. A speck of dust that's so insignificant, small, it can't even be measured. You can't even put it on the scale and measure it. It's so small. And God looks at the nations and all those who rise up against him, and he laughs. The laughter of God in the Bible is a solemn subject, for God only laughs in total derision. It is a laugh of omnipotence. It's a laugh of absolute authority. It's a laugh of total confidence in his ability to destroy all totalitarian world power. He looks at it. It's a speck. Would you get upset? Would you be threatened by a speck of dust? God isn't. God isn't. Psalms 37, 13, the Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You have all the nations in derision. Proverbs 1, 25, because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when you Your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, God laughs. There's no threat to his power. There's no threat to who he is. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded it, and it stood fast. The Lord annuls the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God simply scoffs. This is no threat to me. This is no threat to what is taking place. And in fact, their very existence is dependent upon me. I created them. Their plans have no threat to me. But in verse 5, when he is done laughing and scoffing, then things change. Then, then what happens? By his divine laughter turns to fury. Then he will speak to them in his anger. He rebukes them in his anger because of his absolute holiness, moves him to judge sinners. And the Lord speaks and terrifies them in his wrath. Speaking of a burning indignation. Again here, anger has that idea of flaring nostrils and the intense, passionate, furious vengeance of God. God is not a stoic sovereign moved by cosmic, unmoved by the cosmic rebellion against him. He is excited in his anger He, with a warlike passion and heated vengeance towards those who oppose him. He is angry with sinners. He is angry with sinners. He will terrify them in his fury. This word fury has the idea of red hot kindled wrath and rage. Rage. And this is the necessary response of a holy God. He must respond this way to evil. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. God is holy and he must respond to sin. Well, you might think, well, maybe this is just isolated, right? Maybe you're just overemphasizing that, Pastor. You just got a little angry this week. Well, this, is, this is just an introduction to the Psalms but it keeps going if you were to turn over to Psalm chapter 5 or Psalm 5 verse 4 you would read for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness no evil dwells in you the boastful shall not stand before your eyes you hate all who do iniquity oh I thought, I thought, I thought we said that God you know hate the sin, love the sinner. That's not what God says. He says what? I hate all those who do iniquity. God hates the sinner. Now, he also loves the sinner, but he hates the sinner. God is not neutral towards the sinner. Psalm 5, 6, You destroy those who speak falsehood, Now here's an even stronger word. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God is angry with those who sin. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and God who has has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also repaired for him deadly weapons. He makes his... Arrows, fiery shafts. God, God is against those who are evil. Those who do evil, those who defy him by his very holiness and his justice, he must deal with them. The moral degradation and insanity of the world to stand against God. So God says, listen, I get angry. I deal with the sinner. I deal with the sin. And he says, all of this tumour, all this trying to overthrow, this trying to establish yourself as God, make yourself kings, overthrow my rule, get away from my standards, not being willing to submit to my son. He says it's futile and vain, and I'll tell you why it's futile and vain. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And he says, listen, it's as good as done. You're trying to be kings of the world. You're trying to overthrow the Lord and his anointed, the one who has been declared to be king and king of kings. And he says, guess what? I've already done it. It's as good as done. It's as good as done. Again, Mount Zion here is in Jerusalem, my holy mountain. This is where the Jewish kings were were anointed. And he says, my anointed one is is as good as ruling from Jerusalem in Israel on the holy mountain. Now Christ has been raised. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is sovereignly ruling, but there will come a day where he will come back and he will rule and he will be installed. And he says, all the nations have tried to overthrow him, but there will come a day where he will come. And he's as, as good as installed in the, in the kingdom already. And so he says, God the Father says, listen, you think you can overthrow my anointed. You think you can overthrow my rule. Understand this, you can't. It's as good as done. It's as good as done. Psalm 110 says, a Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. Jesus Christ is the heir in waiting. And so we see The indignation of the Father as he rages against the nations and says, listen, you're futile. Jesus Christ is as good as on the throne. Then we see now here the domination of the Son. The domination of the Son. He says in verse 7, and this is the Son now speaking. And we are now privy to what we would call an inter-Trinitarian conversation, something that we wouldn't know unless it was revealed to us. And so we are getting getting communication between the Trinity here. He says in verse 7, I will tell you, tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord has decreed something that will happen. He's decreed that something will take place. He said to me, you are my son... Today I have begotten you. Now there's been a lot of ink spilled over this as to what this means. But we can start with what it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus came into existence at some time as if he was born. Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is part of the the Trinity and the Godhead. And so he's not saying that Jesus was born or created at some time In eternity past. So what does he mean. By the fact that he says. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well the emphasis here. He says begotten you is the idea. And if we understand first century culture. When we talk about someone being begotten. We are talking about someone. Who comes from someone else. And the idea is this. My son is begotten of me, which means now he he is just like me and he comes with my authority. In other words, he's saying Jesus is the begotten son of God in the fact that he from all eternity has been the son who comes and has the power of the father. He's identical to the father and he's pointing to the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it says here, today, today. For most church history, this has simply been understood to be a term that is spoken by God the Father as an eternal decree from eternity past. From all eternity, the Son has been declared as generating from the Father and that he has, been the, has come from the Father as deity in other words, he comes as another, like the Father, with the same qualities. Others have said, well, actually, I think, I think we totally agree that the Lord Jesus Christ has come in eternity past. We totally agree with that. We totally agree that he's been the Son eternally. But what we think is happening here is this. The Lord Jesus Christ has been declared to be the Son. Today I have begotten you, and this takes place at his resurrection. It takes place at his ascension. And the idea is this, though the Son was the Son from all eternity, he has now been declared publicly to be the Son of God. Now in the Jewish nation, when a son was born to a king, he was the son of the king but he was not actually ready to be heir of the king, of the kingdom until that time where he reached age and he was declared to be the begotten son of the king. In other words, he now became in, an heir to the kingdom and he had the right to rule the throne. And so what's taking place here is that the son is being declared after coming to earth and dying on the cross and and. Being buried and raised again. He is now declared to be ready to rule. And to be able to take the throne. And to rule in the kingdom. Either way. The point is really the same. That he is making. He says. Today you are my son. Truly today I have begotten you. In other words. You are now. You are now the divine right to rule. Whether you rule as God, you have the right to rule. Whether you write as you rule as the Son who has been declared ready to rule, you have that right. You are now ready. You now have the ability to rule because of who you are. And so he says to him, because because the Father has decreed that you are my son and I have begotten you, you are now worthy to to rule. You are fully deity, fully have all the power of the Father. You have the blessing of the Father. He says, "Ask me of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession." Now this is a a a, a promise to the to the father to the son. This is a guarantee. It's a universal kingdom. And he says, ask of me and I will surely give it to you. I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. I will give it all to you. I will give all of those nations that have been rebelling against you, all of those kings who have been at the beginning. And he says, I will give them to you. This reminds us again of Psalm 110 with Jesus Christ. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he says, sit at my right hand until what? Until I put your enemies at your footstool and then I will what? Raise your scepter. In other words, he says, ask for it and I will give you the world. I will give you all of the nations that have been rebelling against you. Now, you sometimes will go to a mission concert conference and you will see this verse set up in the in the in the lobby as if this is a promise that God is going to give the nations to Jesus Christ in salvation but in context i don't think that's what he's talking about he says ask of me and i will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession and then he says this is what you've got to do with these nations Now this doesn't sound like what you're going to do to a believer. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Right? Just like taking the clay pots outside and throwing them on the sidewalk. You are going to smash them to pieces. This is a father's command to the son, destroy the defiant nations. This is what you must do. Again we echo the words of Revelation 2 26 and 27 these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you as for you the anointing which you receive from him abides in you I have no one need to teach you I'm in first John so that look, that's, I was quite proud that I got to the verse so quickly, so I guess we were having correction even from the pulpit. (laughs) Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as also I have received the authority from my father. And again, Jesus Christ will come back. He will come back to set up his kingdom. He will set up the millennial kingdom. And he will come and he will rule the nations with an iron rod. In fact, if we flip over to Revelations chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened up. Now behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and his, and his name is written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in the heavens, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Again, that sword is is his word as he speaks. And on his robe and on his thigh, his name... His name has written, King of kings and lords of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and those who sit upon them and the flesh of all men, both free and free, men and slaves and small and great and i saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army again he will come and he will judge those nations and he will smash them and he will destroy them he has been granted that in fact he has been told you shall do this this is what he is called to do you shall shatter them And so Christ will come again. The son will reign supreme. He will reign over his enemies and he will execute judgment on them for their rebellion and their rejection of him. And he will dash them. He will judge them. And ultimately they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so all of this tumult that we see and all of the raging that we see and all those people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ must recognize that Jesus Christ is as good as reigning. And when he comes, he's coming in judgment for those who have rejected him. So it may seem like we're losing we may not be on the winning side down here, but eventually Jesus Christ will come and judge all those who do evil. And so we have that hope. Well, in light of this coming judgment, in light of what Christ is going to do, and in light of the fact that no one can throw off the shackles of our Lord Jesus Christ because he will either be Lord of your life by you submitting your need to him, or you will bow because he will force you to bow in judgment. In light of that, here's the invitation of grace. He says, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Now therefore, in light of what I've just said, in light of what I've just said, in light of what you've just heard, Be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Take heed. Recognize what is coming. He's pleading with them. O kings, show discernment. Show insight. Let yourself be instructed by what you've heard and what you see. Wise up. Take warning. Receive instruction. He appeals to them to reason together to see what, he, what they have been just told. Those who are invo- involved in a revolt of God, of, against God must think carefully and to s- cease from their long war with heaven show discernment, think kings, you think that you are setting yourself up, you think that you're the kings of the earth, you think that you have the right to rule, you're setting yourself up for as God, and he says, you're not, you're not, and every individual who sets himself up in the throne of their lives makes themselves kings of their lives, and he says, you're not, Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, they are red as crimson, they will be like, like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Come, reason, think. Here's a call for mercy, a call of grace, an undeserved call to grace. As God now extends his grace to those who are against them and calls them to repentance and worship. Worship the Lord with reverence, he says, and rejoice with the trembling. Instead of resisting God, sinners must turn around and serve the Lord with fear. They must realign themselves. They must realign their allegiances and they must serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Come before him. Bow before him. Come give him the glory. Surrender your life to him. Come low. Ascribe glory to him. Do reverence. Take God seriously. No longer serve yourself. No longer serve your own interest, but yield your service to God. This involves a changed heart that is filled with fear and awe and reverence of God. And so he says, turn from self-worship and self-promotion to worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're called to do. Do it in fear. You should fear him. There's a fear that you say, well, I I don't want to displease him, but then you should also be very afraid of him if you're disobeying him. You should have no comfort at all if you live in disobedience to him. Then he adds, rejoice with trembling. Kind of an odd couple of putting words together. But in, in one sense, trembling and recognizing there's a reverence before God keeps the, what, the, the rejoicing and the joyful expression in reverence where it should be. Is done with the proper a- attitude. So we must be finding our greatest pleasure in God and submitting our pleasures, our deepest reverence to Him. And so he says, listen, Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. So think about this. This is what you are called to do. And we could really say that we're, we're getting the John three sixteen of the Old Testament here, where we are called to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign one, and we are to worship him. He says in verse 12, do homage to the son. Literally, it says, kiss the son, kiss the son. Now this is not, this, is, this, is, this, sin, this kiss here needs to be understood in context. When a king would conquer another king, the conquering king would have the king that he has conquered and he would drag that king into his palace. And the conquered king would kiss his feet. And it was a sign of submission it was a sign of, of gratitude, recognizing that he was lucky to be alive. And that he was willing to now to submit to the service of the new king. And so he says, do, the idea is do homage here, do respect. There, there's a sense in which we, we, there's an affection for the son, but also recognize that you are submitting to him. And that you are recognizing his right to rule over you. And that it is only by his mercy that you live. And it will be only by his mercy that you live spiritually as well. And he says, Do homage to the son, kiss his feet, submit yourselves. This was done by by the kings. This would happen when Samuel. Anointed Saul. And so the idea here is repent, submit to the son. Notice he says that he may not become angry. That he may not become angry. In other words, this. The time is short. The time will not always be there for you to be able to give homage to the son. There will be a time where the door will be shut. The time of, on the hour of grace will be passed and he will become angry. He's angry now, but he will express his angry and he will execute his anger. And so loving devotion, loyal allegiance and service to the Lord Jesus Christ are required lest he become angry. And he says, and you perish in the way. Perish here has the idea of eternal destruction. You are destroyed in your way. In other words, it is better here, the choice is clear, it is better to to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ than to be broken by him. God urgently calls sinners to pay homage to his son, lest his wrath flare up says, for his wrath may soon be kindled. While there's an opportunity to do so, sinners must turn from their wicked ways and embrace the Son with, by faith. The scriptures tell us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, behold, today is the day of salvation. Boast not for tomorrow, for you do not know what the day will bring. Harden not your hearts. He calls you, to enter his mercy. And so he says, do homage to the son. I plead with you, invitation, come. There is still time. The son has not returned. The son has not set up his kingdom. He is not smashing the nations. He is not throwing every single sinner who, who is on earth into hell because they have rejected him. There is time, and so he says, come before his wrath is kindled. And then much like Psalm 1, as it started, he ends with this comfort. He ends with this promise. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all those who, who take refuge in him. Blessed is in the plural. Oh, the blessings, oh, the blessednesses of taking refuge in him. And again, the idea to take refuge in the Lord here is to take is, is synonymous with having saving faith. You are putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And he says the idea is to take refuge as a decisive act. Of entrusting one's life to the installed king, in other words, you must you must make that choice to do it. Now we know that you will not come unless he draws you, we know that he will not you will not come unless he regenerates you, and yet from the human side, you are called to make a decisive act to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to put our trust in him, and when we Put our refuge in Him, then we are blessed. We have all the blessings that we have, that that we need for life and godliness. He's given us all, we sit in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. He's given us all things for this life and for the next. And so we have the blessings of God in our life who empowers us to live in obedience, who gives us grace every day, who gives us the joy of the Lord found in him. And he says, how blessed are you? And for us as the church, as we sit here, we recognize the world is not out of control. The kings of the earth are not going to win. They will never overthrow the rule of God. God has declared the beginning from the end. He has declared how it will be. And he is simply allowing the world and he is moving the world to where he wants it and we never need to fear we never need to look around at the circumstances and and fear because our hope is this Jesus Christ is coming again Jesus Christ will rule and Jesus Christ we will see face to face and all the evil that is done in the world and all the evil that is done to us and all of the kings and all of, their, all of their rebellion against God will be dealt with by a just God who knows all things, has no witnesses. He is judge and jury and he will, he will deal with it righteously and justly. And so this morning we have two calls. Have you bowed your knee to the Son? Have you bowed to the King? Have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you recognized that He has the right to rule your life? That He lived a perfect life here on earth as fully God, fully man, died on the cross to, to face the wrath of God for sin, because you need to be saved, not from Satan, not from sin, not from death. You need to be saved from God because God is your problem. He is angry with you. And you are in his hands. And so today, he calls you to believe in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He's not in the grave. He's, rose, he's been raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand. And he is coming back to judge. And so today the call is worship him, submit to him, call on him, ask him to grant repentance that you don't have, beg him to save you, beg him to give you a new heart. He says, whosoever will what may come, all those the fathers given to him will come. And so if that is your desire this morning, then God is calling you. Don't wait. The time is short. And I've said this before, do not go to hell from Bowmanville Baptist Church because you have heard the gospel and you are responsible. And the more you're responsible for, the more you will be judged for. Now for you believers this morning, rejoice, rejoice. God is on his throne. God is sovereignly ruling. Jesus Christ is coming back. He will rule. He will restore all. We have nothing to fear. The world is not out of control. The rulers of this world will never overthrow God's plan. And so we have to look forward to that time where Jesus Christ will return. And he will right all wrongs. He will rule. He will set up his kingdom. And we will rule with him. We can't lose. Because God is on our side. All praise, all glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text this morning. And we thank you that we have been reminded again that one, at one time we were rebellious to you and we sat with the kings and we conspired against you, but you saved us. You called us out. And now as we watch the nations rage against you, We recognize that you are sovereignly in control. That Jesus Christ is coming back and he will reign. He is coming back and he will judge. And we thank you that we will not be in that judgment. But we will rejoice to see him. We will see him face to face. And we will dwell with him forever. And so, Heavenly Father, may we be encouraged to keep our our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not fear this world, but look forward to that time when Jesus returns. We thank you for your word. May you be glorified in the worship of your church this morning, I pray in your name. Amen.